Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 6th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As we heard on Friday, Airgrid is offering landowners in counties Meath, Cavan and Monaghan €50,000 for each pylon built on their land during the construction of the North-South Interconnector. Airgrid is also reportedly offering €48,000 for 300 metres of power lines running over an individual property. Add that to the 50000 pylon payment plus lawyers' fees and you have a grand total of €110,800. Of course, pylons and power lines mean that the project will be constructed over ground. This follows a 15-year-long campaign to run the North-South Interconnector underground, a campaign that is far from over. There's 15 years of worry and indecision on many farms where they're not sure what they can do next based on this thing hanging over them. And that is totally unfair. And it's also uh, very, very unfair that our, our public representatives in government have not lifted a finger to try and sort this out for the past many, many years. That's Ponick O'Reilly of uh, the North East Pylon Pressure Campaign speaking to me on Friday. Let's discuss this now with local TDs, Thomas Byrne, Minister uh, of State and Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East and Peter Tobin, Leader of Ain2, a TD for Meath West. Thomas Byrne, if I could start with you, first of all, Minister, uh, I'm sure uh, you won't argue with what Ponick O'Reilly was saying there, that people in Meath, Cavan and Monaghan feel betrayed by Fine Gael and by Fianna Fáil. I, I take it you won't be expecting to pick up too many votes in the local and European elections in May as a result of this? Well, look, I think um, this campaign has been on, as Park Riley said, for a long, long time. Um, it's been on for 16 years, I think, at this stage. Um, I feel, as a public representative, that I've brought it as far as I can. This has been in the been for planning permission in the Supreme Court and European Courts. Uh, there's been multiple reviews of it, including under this government. And uh, I, I don't feel I can bring the campaign any further. Um, everybody agrees that we need this line. Uh, everybody, I think, acknowledges that a underground line can be done, but it's not ideal, and it's way more costly. Um, and there are significant issues with it as well. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You definitely can't do an AC line underground you can do it you can do it partly DC line underground uh, but significantly more costly 
Um, and I think we are in a situation now where I can't be on the radio talking about increasing energy prices um, and our dependence on natural gas uh, and not say, well, what are the alternatives? And this is one alternative that we have campaigned to have underground over many, many years. And quite frankly, up to now at least, and we have, as I said, we've gone to the highest courts in, in Europe, um, or the NTP have, um, I, I'm not sure how further, how much further anyone can bring this. Uh, do you accept that people feel betrayed by Fianna Fáil? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I mean, we committed to a review uh, before the last election. We did the coalition government. We we didn't get, um, you know, as many seats as we hoped to get. There was a review done, not a perfect review, but a review was done. And I still concluded that if you were to underground this, it would be significantly more costly. Uh, and it didn't change any of, the, any of the findings that have already happened, including full planning permission brought to national courts and European courts. Um, that's just the reality of the situation that people find themselves in. Yeah, but do you not accept that people voted for Fianna Fáil when they have voted for Fianna Fáil on the basis that Fianna Fáil said uh, that you would ensure that this would run underground, and that that hasn't no, happened, no, Michael, and that that sorry, hasn't Michael, happened, no. and as a result, people I feel betrayed. But, but that fe- people feel betrayed. But, sorry, Michael. I wanted underground. I always did. But the commitment we gave before the last election was to have a review. That's the commitment that I gave before the last election. Okay, so you don't think people feel betrayed? That's a matter for each individual voter themselves, Michael, but I I know in the areas that predominantly that this goes through in the constituency that the amount of investment that's going into schools, into sports clubs, into roads, into facilities, into the, the greenway is absolutely massive in, in, in those areas, particularly in North Mead. The biggest school building project in the country uh, is going on in North Mead at the moment in O'Carrollin College. Um, so there's been massive investment in those areas on the issue of the pylons. I don't feel I can bring this any further. And the commitment that we gave before the last election was to have a review. Mm. We, did, we didn't get into an overall majority government where we could do the exact review that we wanted. We're in with two other okay. parties who, quite frankly, didn't have the same opinion before the election. They still got lots of votes in those particular areas. Um, and this, this is what's happened. And okay. if so, anyone so, else can... So if, I've heard nothing... I've heard nothing from any politician of any party in the last week telling me how this can be done. Just um, to be clear, if people do feel betrayed, um, should that be with Fine Gael rather than Fianna Fáil? Sorry, I will be, as I did in the last election, putting our best foot forward, putting our commitments to get as, to get as much value for our votes as we can get. And that's what we have done in this government. And I'm very proud of what we've done in this government mm. over the last number of years, including massive investment. Uh, into rural Mead and rural North Mead in particular. Okay, let me go to Padre Tobin. Are you hearing from people who feel betrayed, as Porrick O'Reilly said on Friday, by local government politicians? There's no doubt uh, that the people of Mead feel betrayed in relation to this. Fianna Fáil stated that they were against uh, this project being overgrounded, um, and I've attended meetings, thousands of other people attended meetings and listened to Thomas Burns said that uh, Fianna Fáil wanted this uh, undergrounded. Uh, and now they are in government, so you would expect that they would fulfil what they said uh, before government. And interestingly enough, Thomas seems to say that the reason why this hasn't happened is because they are in coalition with another party. So in reality, he seems to be blaming Fianna Gael for the fact that Fianna Fáil haven't been able to get this uh, undergrounded, uh, which I, you know, I, I'd like to hear from Fianna Gael in relation to this. The key point in this is, right now, Airgrid and the government have driven into a cul-de-sac in relation to this, a very expensive cul-de-sac. And in desperation, the government are now throwing money at this, uh, and they seek to throw in total 40 million euros 
extra of taxpayers' money at a situation to get these uh, pylons uh, and cables built over farmers' land. That's not terribly unusual, though, is it? But the, it's, I mean, it, you'd it's have to compensate people for constructing something on their land. But, but I will say it is unusual in the fact that in the costing of this project, they didn't include those high levels of compensation figures in the cost. Uh, so in other words, when we were listening to these independent studies, comparing and contrasting overgrounding and undergrounding, that €40 million Euros wasn't included uh, in total uh, in relation to it. But the point I want to say, and this is really uh, pivotal, Farmers are not stupid. They know that these pylons will massively reduce the value of this land. And they understand also that that 50 grand comes after, will be subject to capital gains tax. So they won't get the, 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 they'll get 33% taken out of that, which will be given back to the government as well. And another point in this is they will only get the money if the project is fully complete. Mm. And given that the majority of farmers are up in arms against this, completely against this, that Airgrid have are on a losing battle here okay. because this each each. I want to, I, I want to come back to that. Can I just ask you about the uh, taxable part of this? Are you certain that the payment would be taxable? We did ask Airgrid on Friday if that was the case. We didn't get a response. My understanding is that this will be subject to thirty three percent capital gains tax. So therefore, mm. that fifty grand will will not materialise into fifty grand. Is that all. your understanding as well, Minister? Well, I would expect there will be a taxation element too, John. Okay, yeah. so it ends up being but, very But I also think I as well, I mean, like, there's, there's nothing unusual about money being paid no, no. for rights yeah. of way. Like, yeah. And in fact, if it was underground, it could possibly be more. Um, so, so that's the reality. I mean, this I happens all I, the time. In, in fairness, Michael, people's eyebrows were raised when the figure of uh, 50,000 per pylon and, as you said, mm. 48 per 300 metres of the cable... Uh, and 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 the, the second point I really want this is an important point that each pylon has a specific position in terms of planning. So this is like a really long jigsaw. If any one of those uh, is opposed to and doesn't go in ahead, the whole project falls. And that payment for the pylons doesn't happen until the project is finished. But that's so when that's when that's when ESB goes to the courts, is it not? If 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 if, if an individual farmer signs up for this, they won't get that. Uh, until or if the project is complete. Mm. So in many ways, what we're going to see now throughout the whole of County Mead, because of the government policy, is we're going to see see communities split and fractured over this, and that's Mm. heartbreaking. It's very hard to argue with that, Minister, isn't it? I mean, some people are going to have to take this money because um, they're in financial uh, problems. They've their own uh, problems to deal with, and it is a lot of money to turn down. Uh, but other people are, aren't going to like that if that is what happens, and it will end up dividing communities, will it not? Well, the last thing I want to see uh, are communities divided, and to be fair to the campaign groups, they have maintained unity uh, up to mm. now, no doubt about that. Uh, but the reality is that anybody dealing with Airgrid or ESB networks will deal with them privately and will be able to deal with them. And in fact, this type of, I mean, apart from the fact that this is 400 kV, I mean, this type of arrangement that Airgrid and ESB are, are proposing is very standard practice. If you drive around any field or any road in County Mead, you'll see wires going across land. And at some point in the past, uh, there was payment to farmers for that. Yeah, if the That's farmer standard. accepts the payment. What, 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 what if the farmer doesn't accept the payment and rejects the request to have the pylon or the power lines on their land? Uh, is it t- time then for ESB to go to the courts? Do you, do you expect that that is what will happen? I, I don't expect it will happen. Um, I mean, look, I mean, that's, you have to ask ESB or, or Ergo the question. I'm not their spokesperson. They've been asked by the government to do this in the most efficient way. We've asked, we've asked 
people to review whether they're doing that, and the reviews have said yes, effectively, is what's happened. Okay. Um, but ESC do have powers to enter. That, that's a fact. I mean, there's a Supreme Court case on that in 2018. Yeah, well, that was um, disputed by Patrick O'Reilly on Friday. Patrick Tobin, do you expect that they'll uh, go to the courts uh, uh, and get the power to enter land and construct pylons against the will of the landowners? Um, first of all, I, I believe that's going to be very, very difficult, very, very cumbersome, and it could even have to be done on an individual basis, uh, which would actually just again increase the length of time and cost of this whole project. This has been 16, 17 years in the making. It's a disaster in terms of the delivery of a capital project in the first place. But I will say this, Fianna Fáil are not passengers on this government bus. Airgrids must follow government policy. Fianna Fáil could change government policy to say that this has to be undergrounded, or they could make government policy say that the existing interconnector could have its capacity increased by 30%, which would facilitate the needs uh, of the country in terms of electricity. So the idea that Fianna Fáil are sitting on the sidelines saying, well, you know, Airgrid is doing what it's doing, we've done as much as we can, and we'll wash our hands from then on, is a nonsense. You're in government. You're the, you have the authority, the executive power, to change the policy which Airgrid must follow. And, you know, if, if we're living in a country where Airgrid actually has the most power, that ain't a democracy. That isn't what we signed up for. Minister. We signed up for a situation where people vote for ministers and ministers actually make the policy. Minister. Oh, I'm very clear. I want more electricity supply from renewable sources so that we can have cheaper electricity in this country. I'm really clear about that pattern. That's government policy, to have interconnection and to have interconnection across this island. Oh, be very, very clear about that. I want interconnection. Nobody is arguing about that at all, Thomas. Well, sorry, well, we are, because that's the government policy that I fully subscribe to. I'm Nobody opposes an interconnector no at all. There's no point complaining about higher electricity prices and then saying we should spend another People are few hundred million underground on is this the, is particular the project here. that would be added on to electricity prices. I would prefer if it was underground, but all of the reports we've done, including a review under this government, as we committed to before the last election, show that this would cost substantially more if it was possible at all. Do you believe that's that? That's the difficulty that we're faced with in government. Do you believe but, that? Minister. Well, no, but nobody else has given me evidence that that's not the case. We but, all want Does that mean that you do believe it, Minister? Because you didn't believe it at one stage. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, nobody, nobody has put forward anything else from a scientific point of view that stacks up against that. Well, that's, well that's when, when you believe, well, I, I don't know what's changed in between when well, you did sorry, believe that it could go underground and that it should go underground and that it would be as cheap to go underground. We know that technically it can. Yeah. We, we do know that, but there's a huge extra cost, a massive multiple of costs extra on that. And you and believe that, that, Minister? we wouldn't be able to connect to it from the region. And you believe that, do you, Minister? That there's extra cost. Well, I've never denied that there's extra cost. Okay. I mean, the extra cost was always there, as far as I recall. Okay. I mean, well, we always wanted, we always hoped the technology would change quicker. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's been argued over 15 years at this stage, Peter Tobin, hasn't just, it? Just like, it, it, again, when, we, when the review happened, uh, we put forward the proposition that the government should include the cost to the fall in uh, land value, the fall in business value, the fall in in house prices, etc., to be included on the overgrounding project because they are real costs borne and suffered by communities right along the cartilage of this project. And again, the government refused to include those costs uh, in that review, which basically did not give a like-for-like costing in these projects. It did not compare and contrast equally and fairly the actual cost of these projects. And as a result, 
the government seek to go ahead and allow for that cost to be, to be, to be borne uh, by the farmers, and that's completely wrong. Even at this stage, I would implore the government not to have a situation now where we have a battle, a massive battle on our hands in County Meath, where farmers are pitched against farmers, communities pitched mm. against communities. So, uh, so, rather than ta- so rather than take on that fight, you'd flush money down the loo, would you? No, what I would do is I would, I would look to see could we increase the north-south interconnector that exists currently by 30% to achieve the uh, electricity uh, capacity that we need north and south. Interestingly, in the north, actually, the, the, we were told that this was designed to help the capacity issues in the north. The north has surplus electricity at the moment. That, that capacity need didn't come to fruition um, that, mm. uh, at the start. And secondly, I'll say, in the north, there's also uh, problems and major objectives, uh, objections in relation to this. And now one of the departments has realised it's going to have to change the law in the north to seek CPOs. Yeah, um, because only 50% of landowners have signed up there. Um, Do you think that's going to be a problem or is it one uh, that can be overcome? Just if I could put that to the minister. Well, just, I mean, look, I mean, look, I I don't go there. Um, The way ESP has worked since it was very start was to work with farmers and landowners and communities. That's what it should be doing. But... Ergrid say that, or sorry, NEPP say there's a doubt about whether Ergrid can enter onto lands and this, mm. they, they're not subject to whatever laws there. Paddock could actually, Paddock could himself actually work to solve that by maybe putting forward a private member's bill to absolutely remove any powers that Ergrid and ESB have to go onto land. But I know he won't do that. Would you support him? He won't do that, but would, he could do that. Would you support him? I, I, would I support? No. no. Because... <laughs> So why? What's the because, point? Because, because that because Pater wouldn't put it forward anyway. If he did because put it forward, no minister, supply in the minister, if he that. did put That's it forward, if he did put forward such a motion, minister, you know that it would be completely pointless unless it got the support of the doll. And given the figures that are, are there at the moment, well, it would need the support well, of forward, 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 lots of other pieces of legislation. I know that. I know that. But this is one that you. But this is one that you're suggesting, minister. It's a motion you're suggesting, Paterto being put forward, but one that you wouldn't support. Why would you not support it if you? think he should put it forward? Because because if the ESB did not have the power to enter onto lands, forget about Northeast uh, Interconnector, mm. not said Interconnect for a moment, we'd have no electricity supply in the country. <laughs> That's the reality. So, so listen, Thomas is, is, is suggesting that I put a, a, a bill forward that would create no electricity supply in the country. Like, what nonsense is that? Like, you have a minister here speaking from both sides of, the, of, of his mouth in terms of, of, of this issue. Either he supports the, the will of the people on the ground here, or he doesn't. He's elected... To, to represent the people of Meath, he should be representing the people of Meath. And he should actually just be consistent with his, uh, what he stated before he was elected uh, as, as a, uh, a minister and follow through. If we had a situation where TDs stated something in opposition and actually pushed it forward in government as well, we would have a far healthier uh, democracy okay. in this I'm, country. I'm over time at this stage, but Minister, and just to conclude... We, 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 we committed to a review before oh. the last election. There was a review done, and unfortunately that did not change anything. That's the difficulty that I'm in. That's the practical reality we face. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That is Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East and Minister of State, Thomas Byrne, together with the leader of the Ain2 party, Padderto Bean, who's a TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you probably know, two government ministers, Heather Humphreys and Patrick O'Donovan, were in Carlingford on Friday to see for themselves the damage that has been done in the aftermath of the flooding. Yes, uh, we have been meeting uh, with residents uh, and indeed we've 
walked along here uh, with uh, Minister Patrick O'Donovan and myself and Senator John McGahan and the Deputy uh, Fergus O'Dowd were here now and with the local councillors just to see firsthand uh, the impact this has had on people's lives, the impact it's had on our property. Uh, the First Lady we met, she was an 82 year old lady uh, and uh, all of her family are abroad, thousands of miles away and she was devastated because the whole ground floor of her house is absolutely ruined. Uh, so my officials are with me here today from Social Protection. They've been able to provide assistance and in cases they have actually written checks to help people immediately because that's what we're here to do. We're here to help people uh, through this very, very difficult time. And of course, when it comes uh, to that assistance, people have wanted to know if they'll be entitled to the same type of funding that was afforded to people in Middleton and County Cork. Yeah, absolutely the same uh, will apply right across the country. Nobody's treated differently in the Department of Social Protection. We're here to help people. Uh, it is a means-tested uh, process, but it's very, very generous. Uh, I spoke to uh, a lady there earlier, uh, married with three children. You'd have to be earning over €135,000 uh, before it would impact on, the, on, on your uh, allocation of funding and support. It's for people who don't have insurance, who can't get insurance. The first protocol is your insurance company, but we'll help you in the meantime. So basically it's what we can do to help people when they need it most. If you're over the income threshold, don't worry. It's, uh, you have to make a 1% uh, contribution for every thousand you're actually over the income threshold yourself. So uh, there'll be something for everybody here unless you're a, a, a very high earner. Right, that's Heather Humphreys who together with Patrick O'Donovan was in Carlingford on Friday and speaking to reporters including Eamon Doyle for LMFM but with €480,000 already being paid by the state in emergency flood relief how much more can be paid out if this is part of climate change and part of the future and we're going to get more of it. Well, we want to help people now and we have to deal with the situation that's in hand here today. We've had it in Cork. My officials have been out knocking doors, speaking to people and helping them. And that's the job of government is to help people when they need it. We did the same during COVID. We're here today in Carlingford and I know Minister O'Donovan was in in, uh, in Cork and uh, we were there to help people on the ground. So these things, of course, course we have to, to look at what's down the road but my focus is here today and should this happen whether it's Wexford whether it's Waterford uh, that's the purpose of social protection we'll be there to assist people when they need it they don't have insurance cover through no fault of their own and they need help because their houses are absolutely devastated like it would really bring tears to your eyes when you see what they're putting up with uh, and they're showing you the damage and the dirt and the muck and all that involves a house being flooded it really is heartbreaking for them and it's not just the physical damage it's the mental damage it does to people as well so that's our job here today is to talk to them to hear their concerns and to help them just looking at the businesses, a uh, number of people are very unhappy of the response. Talking to one businessman today, his uh, sewers are still blocked. Um, Would the council, councillors of the government caught every time a disaster like this happens? Councillors and TDs were down filling sandbags. What was the council doing? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, the council are the first responders in, in any event like this. And uh, we're here today with council officials and they have heard firsthand uh, the issues as well. And uh, if there have been mistakes in the past, well, they need to be addressed. 
Absolutely, and I will be talking to the to the, the local authority, and I will be speaking to the the CE later on, and I will be telling her uh, what I have seen here firsthand. They said that the communication was terrible, no updates, nothing happening, and uh, he's still ringing now and getting no answers. Really, not good enough, is it? Yeah. Well, look, I, I expect everybody that has that's had difficulty here that they would get a response, uh, and uh, I, I don't know obviously the specifics of that particular case, but I'm happy to go and speak. To that person after I've spoken to you now. And do you think that the council have done a good job here? Look, there have been, uh, the council have been uh, found that this is a difficult situation, I accept that, but uh, look, there are always lessons. I have, I, there's a number of issues that I will be raising with the county manager when I speak to her later on. I just happen to have first-hand knowledge of what happened in Middleton and it is in stark contrast to what happened here. The army was sent in um, a local mental health centre was used as a, um, a control centre. There was constant updates. Um, people were supplied with free food, with um, bleach, with cleaning materials, with um, skips. None of that has happened here. People was down yeah, can, I, can I just say, look, uh, with regard to flood events of this nature, um, I, I heard Professor Tarn from Maynooth University this morning on, on the radio, and he's absolutely right. The frequency of which these are happening uh, and the, the locations in which they're happening and, and it's the same expressions of people uh, utter all the time. It never happened here before and it certainly never happened to this extent. So unfortunately over the last almost three years I've been visiting towns and villages and, and, and larger communities all over the country that are seeing exactly the same uh, uh, situation as what's happened here in Carlingford and in, in the northern part of County Loud and indeed across the border as well. The problem is the frequency of which we're uh, being asked to address this is happening with a greater level of, uh, I would say, almost violence uh, that's coming in, in terms of the storms uh, and in terms uh, of the weather patterns. Ministers Patrick O'Donovan and Heather Humphreys in Carlingford on Friday speaking to reporters, including Eamon Doyle for LMFM. Now, if you'd like to make comment on our programme today, let me give you the means uh, for doing that. Our phone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Or you can email michael at LMFM. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government uh, should uh, put measures in place that would result in more income going into the pockets of poorer families in this country and make public services more available and more affordable, according to Social Justice Ireland. Suzanne Rogers, research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Suzanne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure people have been hearing in the bulletins, the reason you want to do that is because the number of children who are living in poverty in this country, something that you describe as an alarming statistic. It is an alarming statistic when every other headline that we read is that we are a country at full employment, we are a country that had budget surplus, and then all of a sudden, then so it's almost like there's two there's two separate islands happening here. So it's really just, I mean, this is an annual publication that we make, and it's really just about calling attention again to the fact that not everybody is thriving. You know, the the, the systemic issues that um, that you know impact on on certain households. And we really need to be focusing in on those households if we're going to give these children a chance. So 
I mean, we have seen a reduction in child poverty, so that is to be welcomed. And you can really see the link between increasing rates of social welfare, increasing services, increasing the resources and the drop in the levels of poverty. So this is something that government really can actually deliver on. And that drop has gone from one in five children to one in seven children. It is actually a significant improvement, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is, it is. Now, we, we would be due more figures now from the CSO before the end of the year, and my concern is that we might see a reverse in that trend. But uh, on this occasion, I would be happy to be wrong. I'm not usually happy to be wrong, mm. but this time, I, you know, I would I would be quite content now to be wrong. So I, I, I'm worried about which direction they will go in. But you can see where welfare really does make such a difference. And again, for low-income households, looking at things like living wage instead of minimum wage, refundable tax credits. And again, it's about the services as well that people can access. We were at a committee recently and there was uh, members, there was a trade union uh, representation there. And they were kind of saying, like, when they're talking to their members, their members aren't really that interested in maybe an extra tenor or an extra 15 quid in their wages, what they would actually like to see is that money going back into services. So I'm conscious of that. We had headlines during the summer about children with special needs couldn't get a bus to school. Mm. So even if that family was maybe 10 or 20 quid a week better off in the budget as a result of tax breaks, that money still isn't going to be able to to cover maybe the the price of them accessing private transport to bring their children to wherever they need to go. So the services aspect of what we provide is really, really important. Okay, I suppose though that is kind of exceptional, is it not, in that most school children have free school transport these days. Uh, Most children can go to the GP free. We have free school books uh, in our schools. Uh, There's the childcare scheme, uh, additional funding uh, given over to that. Uh, And this figure of one in seven children living in poverty in this country, alarming as that is, it it equates to 15.2% of children. And I think we have to ask ourselves questions about that. Uh, But if you look at the UK, 29% of children are in poverty. The UK, I think, is, is, is extraordinary to sit back and watch. Like, I'm of a generation where, um, you know, you went to London and the streets were paved with gold, you know, which we all did, I think, in the 80s. You know, the UK was kind of held up as somewhere to go. It was bigger, it was better, it was brighter, there was more opportunities there. And you can kind of see this sort of the shift, I suppose, in, in their policy decisions as well over the last 30 or 40 years. The decisions that the UK government is making when it comes to those on low incomes, when it comes to social housing, how they distribute social welfare, it's actually really disturbing what's happening over there. Um, and I would hate to see us follow on from that. I suppose we would have had a tradition of looking to the UK for, for policy and I would hope that, you know, those days are over because we really don't need to see to see a lot of the, especially the way they look at social welfare and social housing. And, you know, a lot of stuff has gone privatised now, the way that they the way that they run their schools, all of that. I don't I don't necessarily think we need to be looking to the UK anymore for um for guidance on, on how, how, how to do things. So, okay, well, yeah. we have our own problems here. There is no doubt about mm. it. 190,000 children, uh, as you point out, according to the CSO Silk Survey, living in poverty in this country. Uh, and you're asking the government to revisit uh, the budget, aren't you? Uh, to take a, a look at core, so, so core social welfare rates. 
Very much so. So what you've got is when you actually look at what how poverty is defined by the CSO Silk, um, it's 60% of median income. So that's a, a single adult who's getting by on less than 301 euro a week will be classed as living in poverty. So immediately anybody who's in receipt of social welfare will fall into that bracket. And most people who are in receipt of social welfare are pensioners, are people living with an illness or a disability and a lot of lone parent households as well. So it'll be households that, you know, find that there are other barriers to, to employment. And, you know, for us to really be able to sort of provide a basic, decent standard of living for people who are disengaged from the workforce for whatever reason, whatever barriers are in place, we need to be able to look after those people whilst they're unable to work. Mm. So in the social welfare bill, the budget... The government actually does have the opportunity to go back and rediscuss this. I mean, I'm so conscious, again, we have all these conversations about the health bill and the amount of money that goes into the health service. Poverty and poor housing um, play a huge role, I think, in the amount of people that end up in the health system. So this is all joined up. If we mm. provide enough for people to put the heat on and have seven dinners a week, that'll go a long way, um, you know, to preventing, I think, the sort of trolley crisis, the older people ending up in, on trolleys in, in hospitals. And, and frailty. That's, that's not just the unemployed uh, who are going without meals or heat, uh, as uh, the case may be, because uh, we have the working poor in this country. You were talking about meeting with trade unions uh, and uh, 130,000 uh, workers are living at risk of poverty. Like, again, that's an extraordinary figure because usually any conversation about poverty <clears throat> is go get a job. And then what we find is when people, you know, that employment is your route out of poverty, that that is, that is what you should be doing. And yet for some people going out to work isn't providing an adequate income. So that's very much a conversation about the types of jobs that we have out there. So again, when we talk about full employment, what do we actually mean by that? We're talking about people who are underemployed as well. But it's about the wage. It's about the minimum wage and how far that goes. And again, you've got this tiered issue with minimum wage. So people of a certain age are earning really very, very little. We seem to presume it's pin money for teenagers. That might not necessarily be the case. Um, so, I mean, that that is, I mean, going to work is hard enough. And then imagine at the end of the week, still not being able to have, as I said, a dinner seven nights a week or put the immersion on and having a hot shower every day. Mm. Um, you know, that's something definitely needs to be looked at. Absolutely. Just not right. I'm sure most people would agree. Suzanne, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Suzanne Rogers, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you're being asked under a new campaign to save the next dog. Indeed, I think you'll be seeing ads on TV as part of this campaign, which is being launched by Dogs Trust. And it follows a record number of surrender requests this year. Let's speak now to Kira Murren, Head of Communications with Drug Dogs Trust Ireland. Kira, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you're working tirelessly uh, and you've had more requests than ever before from people who wanted to relinquish their dogs. Uh, it, it sounds as though it's an almost impossible situation that you're living with at the moment. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on the show today. Um, yeah, it is. It's absolutely heartbreaking. We're facing a dog crisis all around the country at the moment. Uh, it's not just ourselves. It's every rescue organisation, every pound. Um, are absolutely stretched capacity. It's stopped being abandoned and surrendered in record numbers across the country. 
Um, and yeah, we're, we're left picking up the pieces and it's absolutely devastating. Okay, three and a half thousand people sought to relinquish their dog, but uh, as you say, dogs are being abandoned as well as uh, people requesting to hand them over to you. Maybe you tell us about some of those dogs. Tell us about Tiny and Minnie, for example, if you would, please. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's just an absolutely heartbreaking story. Um, two two dogs were thrown from a moving vehicle, um, and it's absolutely just it's not even worth thinking about um, what they went through. Um, and they were they were seen by a member of the public, a kind member of the public, who who, who witnessed it happening and brought them into the Irish Blue Cross. Um, and then the Irish Blue Cross looked after them until we were able to take them in. Um, and and give them veterinary care, and we rehomed them. Then, and thankfully, they've they've got loving homes now. And um, but it's something that no dog should ever have to go through. And mm. um, you know, we would really urge people to ring for help if if you can't look after your dog for whatever the, the reason is. Yeah, it's very hard to understand how anybody could do something like that to throw a, a dog out of a, a moving car. Uh, but perhaps all, all the harder to understand, given that they're eleven year old dogs. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing an awful lot of is, is um, dogs that are coming in with extenuating veterinary issues as well. Um, we're thinking that that could be down to cost. Um, and, and a lot of the time that these veterinary issues could have been maybe prevented if they had seen a vet earlier on. Um, now they've gotten to the point where they've gotten out of hand. They're going to be very expensive to treat and and rescues like ourselves are, are left picking up the pieces. Right. Uh, it's still very difficult, though, to think uh, that after uh, 11 years that somebody would do that. Let, anybody would do it at all, ever, as I said, Kira. Uh, but you'd imagine uh, after 11 years uh, they'd uh, be beloved members of someone's family. Uh, obviously not the case. Uh, and it's not only old dogs uh, who are unwanted. Tell us about the puppies, the seven puppies that you found at your gate. Yeah, we we did. Unfortunately, we had um, a litter of puppies dropped at our gate. And unfortunately, we see this quite a lot um, with puppies being abandoned and surrendered. There's um, an awful lot of unwanted litters in the country. Um, you know, we would really advise people to get their dogs neutered um, for, for, prevent, for prevention, obviously. Um, it's better than, than, than cure. But um, yeah, it's, unfortunately, this is something that we're seeing quite a lot of is puppies being abandoned and surrendered now as well because there's not enough demand for dogs at the moment and what we're seeing is that even puppies that you would think would find it very easy to get a home are being are being surrendered and abandoned as well in record numbers. Mm, so, they, they were in an awful condition as well, weren't they? Yeah, they did. They had they had really bad uh, sarcoptic mange, which is something that you know can be very very painful for a dog. So mm. it's something that we would have had to treat straight away. Um, and and luckily they did come into us and they were in the right care and in the right hands. But mm. you know it's just devastating to think that puppies could be even left out in the street, you yeah. know, in pain and you know maybe not found for a couple of days. And especially coming into these winter months, to think of a dog being outside on its own potentially in pain it's just absolutely heartbreaking to think about okay beautiful creatures uh, i'm sure there's little doubt of that uh, somebody didn't want them does anybody want them there are people that that do want um dogs but unfortunately the demand just isn't as high as we have been seeing in previous years and um, you know we went through uh, the pandemic where there was just influx of people who wanted to take on dogs you couldn't get a dog yeah Mm. you couldn't get a dog and yeah and this is the problem is that the you know there was a lot more people um going out there there was unscrupulous breeders taking advantage of that and breeding you know in multiples and multiples 
And now what's happened is that all of those jobs that people have realised are going back to their daily lives, going back to their work, um, and they can't look after them for whatever reason that might be. Um, you know, there's a there's a whole range of different reasons that that, that could be. We've seen mm. our top three our top three reasons, for example, would be unwanted behaviours, accommodation challenges, and owners not having enough time. You know, so. You know, for example, unwanted behaviours could be something as simple as, you know, the dog's barking all day because it's been left on its own. Um, it might be bored. So. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, might be chewing furniture. So it's things like that um, that we're seeing that people are just saying, oh, look, this is too much now. And they didn't put the, you know, the, the time and and attention in at the beginning, maybe for tra- proper training. They weren't, you know, they didn't do research or weren't prepared for the amount of responsibility that comes with a dog. And now, um, now that's what we're seeing is the fallout of that. And, um, you know, a really, really high rate of adolescent dogs coming into our, our centre and being asked to be surrendered because mm. um, people simply get, get to that adolescent. The puppies are so cute and then they get to the adolescent stage and they're not able to handle their jobs anymore for whatever reason and um, those might be and that's where we're seeing a lot of those dogs being abandoned and surrendered okay how many dogs have you got at the moment um well, we've over 200 dogs in our care and we i mean there, we have our center a rehoming center in dublin but we rehome dogs all across the country mm. so we have dogs out on foster and um, a big part of our of our work now is regional rehoming which is getting dogs into foster homes all around the country um so that we can rehome all around the country as well just to you know to really have that that far reach um and try and get as many people as we can to to adopt so yeah we we have a lot of dogs in our care and we we constantly have dogs waiting to come in as well and um, because we can't we don't have we don't have a space for everyone and that's the sad reality of a lot of rescues and pounds across the country is that simply there isn't enough space, there isn't enough foster homes at the moment. And um, so we would really urge people to, you know, come to us and, and foster if you can, even for a short period of time, because that does really help as well. OK, and this is the thrust of the campaign, Save the Next Dog. Uh, I take it if people don't come forward, uh, then you've got a, a problem on your hands. Uh, what do you do with 200 dogs? Uh, and uh, that has, a, a say, is what you're asking people to help you to do. Yeah, well, we do, you know, we, we, we try our best to, you know, to 
to care for as many dogs as possible. Um, as I said, you know, we can't we can't save them all, but we want what we want people to do is to um, donate to us, um, and we can save the next dog. Um, we can continue our work. We can t- continue to, to save the next dog, um, which is obviously the, the name of why we we've called the name of our campaign Save the Next Dog because we do want to continue our work we do want to continue saving dogs um, and we will do our absolute our absolute best and our utmost to, to continue our life saving work yeah, I think Sharon Navin uh, would uh, like to support you and uh, she says uh, in a text it was COVID dogs not good enough now for people who have gone back to work uh, but she'd much prefer animals to humans and she says if she won the lotto she'd adopt every unwanted animal going uh, which I think uh, uh, is laudable in itself Kira, lovely to talk to you and thank you indeed uh, people will find Dogs Trust pretty easy if they want to uh, make a donation or if indeed they want to foster or adopt Adopt one of your dogs, and thank you for joining us on the program this morning. Kira Murren is the head of communications with Dogs Trust Ireland. Now, interesting as well to see that Dundalk Dog Rescue was obviously very upset yesterday uh, when they posted online about a dog that had been abandoned uh, outside of uh, their premises uh, on the side of a busy road and motorway. What sort of person walks away from their dog? Uh, It wasn't a stray. He wasn't lost. He wasn't any of those things. He was abandoned by the humans he trusted. And they said, we have you on camera. This morning we watched back to the moment you tied him to the gate and walked away. We watched as your dog watched you tie them up and walk away, patiently waiting for you to return. But you never did return. There are so many places to ask for help. It may not be instant help, but help is there. Tying an animal up in the dead of night and walking away is just unacceptable. Your dog stood there for nine hours, alone, confused, terrified, exposed to the elements in the dark. There is absolutely no excuse for this. So I say that was posted by Dundalk Dog Rescue yesterday. Uh, I suppose ties in with what we've just been talking about uh, and uh, the extent of the problem. Another comment now that comes to us from Tony in County Loud, who says, Michael, I don't know why everyone is pretending they don't know why Israel is treating Ireland the way they are. Uh, The reasons the minister mentioned Ireland as a destination for Gazans is because we have rightly shown some humanity and backbone in our comments with regard to what Israel should do in this disproportionate war. But secondly, we are now the joke of Europe, having recently discovered we are paying 20 times that of other European countries to refugees, resulting in us being a magnet for refugees everywhere, including those already in Europe uh, and taking advantage of this. Our humanitarian commons are also the reason why no Irish have been included in those being allowed to exit at the Rafa border checkpoint. It's no mystery and it's no coincidence, says Tony. Thanks, uh, Tony, for that. Um, certainly was uh, 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 an eyebrow-lifting sort of comment uh, that the Palestinians could go to the desert or to Ireland, um, whatever he meant about that. But I think uh, you probably have hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
We were talking uh, or listening to Heather Humphreys and Patrick O'Donovan uh, talking about the flooding in Carlingford and we heard Eamon Doyle ask some pertinent questions about the council. Minister Humphrey said she'd speak to Joan Martin, uh, the head of the council afterwards because uh, of how disappointed and indeed frustrated people were at the response of uh, the council. Uh, and as Eamon put it to the minister, it was left to TDs and councillors to get down filling sandbags. Uh, somebody texting us saying uh, all of the government ministers in Carlingford were only there for a photo shoot for the local elections. Anton Waters was on his knees cleaning drains and driving teleporters. That's what you call a politician, says our caller. Thank you indeed uh, for making your comments uh, on the programme. A text message then from somebody very uh, annoyed with Thomas Byrne and Fianna Fáil, undoubtedly because of the North-South interconnector, saying Thomas Byrne has become a blue shirt. Fianna Fáil are liars. Our house used to be Fianna Fáil led but not anymore thank you indeed uh, for that Uh, someone else in touch with us saying anyone uh, who puts a a dog or a cat out or put them in the boot of a a car uh, and let them out uh, during the night uh, obviously something wrong there as well thank you indeed if you have been in touch our phone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, let's talk about RTE's financial woes and indeed uh, there are many of them, possibly 61 million euro lost in licence fee revenue. Uh, that's the latest assessment given by the Minister for Media, Catherine Martin. Uh, that's between this year and next year. And of course then there's all of the scandals surrounding RTE's spending of public money. There's been many reports into what's happened at RTE, most of them done by Grant Thornton. And RTE has told the Public Accounts Committee that the Grant Thornton reports have resulted in a cost of €493,000. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Almost half a million euro. Uh, and that's before a separate report uh, is paid for from McCann Fitzgerald, uh, which is looking at the voluntary exit schemes. Let's speak to a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee local Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed as always for joining us, Imelda. Half a million euro on reports into RTE being paid uh, to external auditors. It does seem remarkable. You would imagine with all of the funding and all of the money and all of the people and all of the experts in RTE, they'd be able to carry out a lot of this work themselves. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it is scandalous, the amount, and that's not the final um, cost. Uh, we were told at one of the committees, I think it was the Public Accounts Committee, that they were paying 250000 per month on the, the reports, the Grant Thornton reports, of which there were three. So it's not final. And then, as you say, the separate review into the um, voluntary exit packages, we don't know the cost of that as yet. But I suppose, in reality, to try and uncover the truth, they would have had to get outside auditors in to be forensic, given what we witnessed at the committee. You know, the reluctance by the executive board members to be upfront and forthright with information requested or even answering the questions. You know, I'd say most people think that it's, it is fair to say that an in-house, and from what I, you know, my perception of it all, an in-house internal investigation wouldn't have revealed the truth and more than likely led to further cover-ups. 
Mm, but it but also it, adds to the costs for oh, RTE, yeah, doesn't it? It's an awful lot of money. Yeah, it's, it's further cost to the public purse, you know, and it's all down to mismanagement, um, lack of accountancy, and spending public money like it was their own money to spend on whatever they wished. Mm. It was that whole culture, you know. And I suppose in one way, it's, it's, one way it's an extraordinary amount of money that the public purse has to pay for. But if we get to the truth and root out that culture and that lack of accountability and that they were above everybody else and they could do what they wanted and spend what they wanted, you know, it, long term, it might save us a lot more money. Mm. Uh, you've been very critical as well of uh, self-employed people uh, working for RTE or, or bogus self-employed people, people who are actually employed by RTE but are, are uh, defined as being self-employed. There's a, a lot of implications in all of that. Um, the employee uh, might like the idea because they'll end up paying less in tax but so does RTE and they don't have to pay them holidays, sick days uh, and so on. Uh, and um, this has gone to the course. RTE has spent, I see in the Irish Times today, €75,000 uh, appealing bogus self-employment findings by the department. It's crazy what they're doing. They're actually fighting the workers for, um, despite the fact that it was RTE, was they themselves that bogus, bogusly misclassified those workers. Um, and they've already paid £1.2 million to revenue and I had asked at the last Public Accounts Committee, and it was the first time they put it on record. They've put just short of 20 million set aside to pay revenue. So they know they've done wrong. They know that by law they're going to have to pay revenue, yet they haven't set aside one cent to pay workers. And yet at the same time, you had the top executives walk off with exit packages that some of them weren't even entitled to. Like, again, it's that two tier system. Those at the top you know, mm. get everything they're entitled to and more, and some that are not ent- more that they're not entitled to. And then they try and fleece and do workers out of holiday pay and sick leave and pension rights and deny their, their entitlements. You know, and it's, it's, it's insane that they're actually fighting those cases in the court because if revenue is declared that there was um, 695 workers misclassified, well, then RTE needs to put that right. And instead of, again, it's that mentality that, that they think that public money is there to do what they, they want with it. Mm. It would serve them better to reinstate those those workers' rights and their entitlements rather than fighting in the court and spending public money doing that. It's, it's, sometimes it's, it's actually hard to believe the, the type of institution it is and the fact that it's actually our public broadcaster mm. and all of this has gone on and is continuing to go on and you've been struggling to get information from RTE this is far from over though uh, and uh, you're looking for a, a note uh, on that very controversial 75,000 euro a, a year that Ryan Turberty uh, received over a period of three years um, RTE has said it doesn't want to give it to you you're looking to compel it and that's to be decided this mm. week yeah, yeah, we're we're looking for we've we've sought powers to compel through the procedures, um, privileges and oversight group, and we're looking to have to compel. But that's, I mean, I raised that with the minister about two weeks ago, um, and she had said that the new director general that she'd spoken to him about it that week or the week prior, 
and that he was looking for a way to furnish the committee with that. But thus far, we haven't got it. But that's the whole root of the thing, you know, and they were claiming um, legal, they were claiming that it was legally privileged, but they've the power to waive that privilege. And then they were claiming that it was governed by client confidentiality. But that argument doesn't Mm. stand up because, you know, a client will have the right to waive any confidentiality. So it's, you see, and what they don't realise is they'll never even begin to regain trust of the public if they are keeping that the minutes of that initial meeting which started the whole shooting gallery as to who organised those top-up payments, how they were done, who was involved, and they want to keep a lid on that. You know, and mm. they're, they're just going... I mean, I can't honestly, honestly, at the minute, see... Previously, there was always about 15% of non-payment of the licence on an annual basis, mm. non-payment or avoidance, right? But these additional losses now, and I think on average, we were told at the pack that they were down 30% a month. I think uh, September, they were down 39%. These additional losses are down to RTE's own making of what people mm. witnessed, you know, through the two committees and, and the scandals as they evolved. How is it going so to end I, up, though? I, I mean, uh, they were in trouble before this started. Uh, they're talking yeah, about a, a loss of £61 million on lost yeah. licence fee revenue on its own, but they were looking for €34, €35 million Euro before all of this. I think that included yeah. £9 million for pay rises. Uh, but uh, is the government, or should the government, give RTE €100 million, Euro or what's going to happen? No, I think um, RTE have said that they're going to provide um, an outline framework um, for strategic reform, right? And they said that they'll give that over in the next few weeks, but they'll deliver a more detailed and costed um, strategy by early next year. Now, the devil will be in the detail there, but um, it is my belief that no agreement whatsoever on funding should be given until they've proven that they've cleaned up up their act, they show show us how the methods of accountability and transparency would be included in that new strategy, and how every single penny of public money will be sp- accounted for, spent and accounted for. That there's no more of those junkets and flip flops and 2.2 million spent on the toy show musical, mm. and they literally spent public money as they saw fit. Like this, this, they were. They, they were of the belief, and you saw that in the committee, they were in the, of the belief that they were accountable to nobody, that they were RTE, and that was it. They didn't have to answer to anybody. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. That is Sinn Féin TD for Lau, the Melda Munster, who's a member of the Public Accounts Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And one of the greatest challenges of today is helping children to navigate an online world, one which brings new threats and affects the ability to maintain healthy connections. And that is why we will be expanding guidelines and controls on smartphone access in schools. And every family in school will receive guidance on how to navigate this challenge with their children to keep them safe and healthy. Right, that's uh, the tarnished uh, Michal Martin uh, during his Fianna Fáil leader's speech at the Ordesh in Dublin. 
over the weekend and a memo on smartphones is to be brought to Cabinet by the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, this week. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Erin McGreen is Fianna Fáil Senator and Party Spokesperson on Children in Shannon Erin and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Erin McGreen. Thank you indeed for joining us. What are you expecting to hear from the Minister? Is it that parents would decide themselves with, uh, I suppose, a, a little bit of persuasion from the government not to get phones for children until they go to secondary school or would there be a ban on phones in primary schools? No, I don't think there will be. A, good morning, Michael. But mm. I don't think there will be a, a, a ban on, on, on mobile phones. You know, the government are not going to police what a parent purchases for their children. And I suppose, you know, we, we all must look at what we as parents, and I know myself, I, 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 I question what I what I what I feed my children, I question what I give my children because there are there are, are consequences to things. And I suppose what the government wants to do is highlight um what smartphones are doing to young people. Um, and particularly young to, to younger children. Um, they're they're not a benign device. They're not a benign, harmless thing. Smartphones are causing havoc in children's mental health, really damaging children. And I I know myself as an adult. Um, you know, smartphones can can be all consuming. They take in the outside world, um, and you are you are constantly on. Mm. They are a mature device. They are okay. a, a very adult. You have thing. you have me. Con- uh, yeah, you have convinced me. All right, <laughs> 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 but but how are you, how are you going to convince a nine year old or a twelve year old? Well, I suppose as parents, that's what our job of work is to do, and it is we, what the government wants to do is to think it to empower parents. To, and, and for as a collective action for all parents to empower each other and to look at what what support can be given, and I think we're looking at this as a, as an entirety. We're looking at you know children's mental health. We're seeing it in camps. We're seeing it at our doctors in the in our GPs. We're from the health side. Government are seeing the effects. That's not just in Ireland. That's all across all across Europe. I think that the, the stats, the data is there. Mm. So what we have to do now is some people, as a government, some people, know, uh, li- some people like uh, smartphones. I mean, some parents like smartphones. They'll they'll, yeah. u- they'll use them uh, as a, a, a nanny, if you like. Um, they're they're to keep their children occupied. So Michael, I'm not going to preach to parents about what they want to purchase for their children. No, but is but the what government, or what effect will this have if half of the children or a third of the children have smartphones anyway? Yeah, and, and but then that's part of that's part of being a parent, Michael. It's part of what we have to do as parents. Um, and, I, and as a mammy of me, mm. I have four young boys who are going up in such a different world than what we did. Yeah, um, and, that, that, and that, that's an opinion. That's, that's, that's an opinion, though. As I say, some people yeah, have the opinion that the phone can opinion. act as a childminder. It's an opinion, yeah. but it's also a fact that smartphones are doing damage to our young children's mm. mental health. No, as I say, you've convinced me, but you won't convince some yeah. nine-year-olds, and no. some of their parents won't be convinced either. Well, and that's it. Mm. Michael, mm. some parents will feed their children sweets every single hour of the day because it, it makes the child temporarily happy. But the thing is, the majority of parents want to do the right thing for their child. There is an incredible amount of peer pressure coming from all around 
um, from children, from other families, to buy and purchase that phone. What the government wants to do now is highlight the dangers, support the families and the parents who do not want to buy their smartphones because they are worried about their children's mental health and they're worried about their children's social relationships. And I think that's what the government wants to do. It's not about preaching. It's not about... It's not about banning parents and preventing parents to buy, um, to stop them buying technology. It's about supporting, it's about engaging with parents and to show this is damaging our children. It's, they're not a benign device. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for one, as a parent of a child who my eldest is coming to 11 this Christmas, they're asking for, they're asking, when am I getting a smartphone? And I have said, you're not getting it. Um, but if the, if I can say it to my child and go, actually, boys, it's you know collectively it's wrong. We're not buying it. It's the advice mm. from our doctors, from government, not to do that. We're not going to put in. Um, you know, parents shouldn't be given. Um, you wouldn't give a box of fags to your child. Well, what what what, what are your eleven year old boys saying? What, what are your eleven year old boys saying to you about the other kids in the class, though, or on the street? Um, well, the thing is. We all have to parent at the end of the day. Yeah, but are they not, are they not arguing the point with you saying I'm the only one or uh, most of the kids? Yeah, are, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. Michael, mm-hmm. and, and when I was growing up, but, I might have been the only big girl that didn't mm. get somewhere. No, I know, um, but and, I, I, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not arguing the point. I'm just wondering what yeah. uh, the government is hoping it's to do to change that. You know, uh, if, it's, it's, if it's not going supporting. to be a ban on phones in the schools, uh, how is there, how are we going to make this collective decision? Or to put that another way, how was the government hoping to convince parents uh, to take the phones back off children or not get them for them. Yeah, I think that's, and that's, that's a critical point. But what we're seeing is, by this conversation, Christmas is coming now, and having this conversation, by highlighting the dangers, um, you know, there are clear dangers. Our children's mental health are, is seriously suffering. Their social relations are suffering. Ch- there's lots of children in, that aren't even... Norm, doing, able to do normal activities, kicking a ball, um, jumping up and down. These things, this is very dangerous stuff for our health system going forward, Michael. And I think this is what we we have to what we have to be looking at as a government, looking at as a, as a as a community, mm. as a family. And it's for parents to support other parents. Yes, of course, there's going to be a child in the class that that their parent is going to buy this. But it's about supporting the parents who didn't buy that and supporting the children and saying, well, actually, no, you're better off. And in a couple of years, the, the child will realise that they, they are better off. And I'm seeing comments on, you know, on, on, new, on news articles here in about the issue. And I, one, one parent said, I give my child, my 12-year-old son, a, a phone and let him download Snapchat. It was the single greatest mistake I have ever made in his upbringing. Mm. So there's a parent, and um, there is there is a parent who regretted it and goes, "It lasted a month, and I took it all away." Needless to say, I have my son back. So that's from a parent online talking about how they took took action on on their mistake. And um, a lot of parents, I don't think parents would say it was a good decision to give their child uh, an adult device. Okay. Um, we wouldn't give them, well, you shouldn't give them alcohol, you shouldn't give them cigarettes. Um, and, you know, that it is a health issue here. It's not just about playing those games. 
it's not just about being able to, you know, mess and play on Snapchat. This is is actually has become a serious health issue. Okay. And that's what the government is trying to highlight to explain to parents and, and to and to empower parents to say no to their child. It's really hard to say no to a, to a child. I know myself. I'm fighting against that every single day. I have four of them. Um, it's not easy. Um, sometimes we break. We do, absolutely, Michael. Um, and I'm not a not a perfect, perfect parent. All we can do is do our best. Okay. Um, should I be expecting a lot of text messages uh, from members of Fianna Fáil supporting what you've just said? Uh, you had a busy Ordesh over the weekend, uh, but I believe uh, there was a, a list of contact details for local and national radio shows given to members to support elected representatives when they make appearances on shows like this one. Your General Secretary, Sean Dorgan, said it is important to engage with these shows and support our party and our Oireachtas members when they're appearing uh, on the local media. Make sure you're aware of the email stroke contact for your local radio station and newspaper. Um, and but, Michael, you were there too. The Michael Reed show was, yep. was a very prominent show on, on that list. <laughs> and I think, yes, absolutely. Um, there, there is an important... For, being for our, our party with an awful lot of support and um, an awful lot of grassroots support. I think often that we forget that that physical, focal support um, is sometimes lacking. Um, and, you know, quite often, um, it does no harm to express your support for your party. Um, and also, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I don't think that the Michael Reed show or, or whatever show mm. around the country would say no to engagement from their from their from their from their their listeners. And mm. um, you have a lot of listeners who are Fianna Fáil supporters, Michael. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's to, to highlight. Well, there you go. There's Michael's there's Michael's contact details. Get in touch if you agree. We're not we're, we we don't message we don't message a line to our members. Yeah. And um, they can they can also they could also ring up and uh, tell you, Michael. They didn't agree with the senator on that occasion, but it's about engaging in political conversation. There's a lot of important current affairs issues that maybe sometimes our members don't get involved in, and we're trying to encourage them and give them the access to to do that. Okay. And because I speak to a lot of our members, and more engagement onto any show, I think, is is positive. For, for all shows like them. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I take it, though, uh, there's no coincidence uh, that we're looking into the local and European elections, having said all of that. But uh, I think it's true to say that uh, there was a, an upbeat, buoyant mood at the Ordesh over the weekend. Uh, and uh, just very quickly, before you leave us, um, are, are you satisfied with the moves government are, are making uh, to help uh, people in North Louth uh, who've experienced flooding? We heard Heather Humphreys earlier in the programme saying uh, everybody will be treated the same as was the case in Middleton and County Cork. Yeah, so I was really glad that Michael McGrath came down last Wednesday morning um, and, and absolutely confirmed that every all supports that, w- that is available to, to the people in Middleton and Cork will be available for, for loud. So I, I was very glad to have that confirmed on Wednesday morning by Minister Michael McGrath. My, my issue is now is there is a massive clean-up and um, there's a huge job of work, Michael, to be done. There are still houses that are inaccessible. On Saturday morning, there were still houses being flooded. So rainfall came on Saturday morning um, and more houses were flooded. Like that's just, it's a desperate situation. Um, my my priorities now is for for homeowners to get access to their homes, roads cleared, 
and then I'm hoping to work with Minister Jack Chambers. I've invited him down to to, to Northledge to see the devastation and destruction of roads. Like, and there's potholes that are taller mm. that are nearly up to my to my neck, um, in some on some roads. And um, that's not just going to be, um, you know, a, a small digger and a pot and a and a, and a council worker filling in there. That's a that's a huge body of work. It's manpower. It's resources that are, that are needed. Also, Michael, there's not a scheme as yet for agricultural enterprises. There has been fences destroyed. There has been there is fields destroyed, um, and there has been fodder absolutely ruined. So there is there is no scheme currently. I spoke to Charlie McConnell on Saturday about the farm, about about agricultural enterprises, hugely important important um, uh, part of our economy here in in, in County Loud, and at the minute. There is, there is no scheme. Um, I'm working on that. There has been schemes in the past. There was one for Inishone. There was one for, for Leitrim um, there two years ago. So there is precedent for this. Um, and I'm currently working with Mr. Charlie McConnell to make sure that fodder, fences and fields um, are, are looked after and access routes are looked after for farmers because, as I said, um, there's no there's no scheme currently, and that's why I'm working I'm working through that at the minute. I want to assure okay. farmers who are listening at the minute that I am working working on that, okay. um, because it is it is a hugely important issue, as you can imagine, when fences and fields are, are ruined. That's your shop floor. Okay. And um, so the shop floor on, on businesses are take can be taken care of. More but, on our, that. but our farmers' shop floor have not got a scheme as more, yet. More I'm on, on that. More on that and on, as you say. Thank you indeed, Senator, Absolutely. for joining us on the programme sure, this morning. That is Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as a part of World Diabetes Week, uh, the uh, disease in itself uh, is something that uh, was discussed at a huge event that took place in Ennis yesterday. May Frawley Cree Connects Cardiovascular Nurse Specialist joins us uh, to tell us a little bit more about diabetes. And I suppose, Maeve, that is the objective of this week to speak to people who have diabetes about how they manage the condition and indeed to the rest of us who could be at risk of developing diabetes. Yeah, hi, thanks very much and good morning everybody and great to be partnership with Diabetes Ireland this morning on this topic of um, diabetes and, and heart failure. And I suppose the important thing is for people to know their numbers, get to know themselves, know their numbers of their blood pressure their cholesterol, their bloods, and um, when they're going to the GP, to understand that your GP is testing you for diabetes, he's testing you for heart failure, he's testing you for heart disease and kidney disease, and it's important to understand those numbers. Mm. Heart um, failure, kidney disease, uh, and that's uh, at odds with what a lot of people would associate with diabetes. So it shows how serious the condition can be. Yeah, I suppose for people living with um, diabetes type 1 and type 2 diabetes, their risk of heart failure is two to four times stronger than people with non-diabetes. So understanding yourself and your symptoms, and I suppose the symptoms, the signs and symptoms of heart failure, you know, is they're quite um, general. Cough, wheeze, tiredness, a loss of appetite, maybe getting up to the toilet more often. So I'm always campaigning to people, know your body, know when something's a little bit different. I'm getting tired a lot more easily. Mm. I can't walk the distance that I could walk without getting short of breath. 
talk to your GP, talk to your clinical person. If it's a diabetic clinic you're going into, talk to them about your symptoms and get a diagnosis made. It can be hard to have your voice listened to. So understanding your numbers, knowing that I can't walk 100 yards without getting short of breath, that's something different. That's something new for you. So knowing those numbers, knowing those steps gives you a clear voice when you're talking to your medical person. Okay, there are times when you can't uh, avoid diabetes because it's hereditary, type 1 uh, diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, though, uh, is down to lifestyle. Um, What advice would you have for anybody who's pre-diabetic? Pre-diabetic, again, it's a really lovely blood test. It gives you a good indication, well, I am pre-diabetic, to change my lifestyle, my diet, my exercise, the way I look at the activities I'm doing set some small, smart goals, understanding what you're eating and how much exercise we need to be doing. So keeping a food diary, looking at the foods that maybe you're eating a little bit too much of, like saturated fats, the carbohydrates, the fizzy drinks. um, And, you know, to even start eliminating one of those per week, one of those things that seem to be coming up every day on your list of foods that are not on the food permit for recommendations. Um, and then exercising. Exercising is so important to the level that a person can do. Mm. So starting small, increasing it up, go week by week. Don't be trying to get the 10,000 steps a day in if you're only getting 250. If you're getting 250, try to get to 300. Mm. And knowing that you can exercise, sitting down in a chair, any activity is better than nothing. So the more mobile that you are, the better it is. It helps your metabolism. It helps the blood sugar break down the sugar and gets rid of it. So diet and exercise and lifestyle is so important. And if it's confusing you, you know, if you just can't understand it, give the Cree Connect um, phone number a call. Um, you'll have a nurse there on the helpline that'll help you set those smart goals, set those realistic achievements. Because in three months' time, when they repeat those bloods. It can have changed, and that's a wonderful asset to see, that with lifestyle changes, you have put that blood sugar within to a normal range. It won't stay there unless you continue that changes, so it's hard to continue that change. And as you say, lots of advice as well, available to people from Diabetes Ireland. Is it that if people have been diagnosed, though, with diabetes, uh, they're... Uh, fully in control, if you like, that they know how to, con- uh, to, to to manage the condition? Oh, not at all. People who are just diagnosed with it probably know very little of it. They probably hear the word and then their whole world shatters, I have diabetes. They don't understand it. They can't make changes. And it has long-term consequences. So you can live healthily with diabetes. But knowing how to live healthily, that is a big challenge. And that's what here, here in Cree, we're here to help people make those changes. You know, um, it is a lifelong disease. Mm. And our lifestyle, if it's type 2, does indicate it. But learning to understand it, and I mean, Diabetes Ireland has a brilliant website there. There's some lovely online and in-person programs that people can follow to understand diabetes. You know, it's a condition that you need to learn to control and understand. And not reversible. It can be reversible. Yes, type 2 can be reversible if we look after the lifestyle risk factors. Mm. But maintain it. 
So we might get a normal blood test within normal range of a HbA1c after three months of a lifestyle changes. That can go into remission again if we start to slip back into our old ways. So keeping that blood test done with your GP, understanding what you're having done with your GP is so important that you're in control of it. So with lifestyle changes, you're in control of it. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, though, Maeve, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, That's Maeve Frawley, Cree Connects cardiovascular nurse specialist uh, joining us uh, this Diabetes Week on behalf of Diabetes Ireland. And that brings our programme to its conclusion today with thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching the show. Chris Murray was at the control tower. I'm Michael and Godwin was here for our next programme on uh, tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.